The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And today's topic is protest, and in particular the mass protest movements that have increasingly become a feature of Indonesian democracy and which are currently opposing authoritarian regimes in Indonesia's Southeast Asian neighbours, Thailand and Myanmar. To cite just a couple of recent examples from Indonesia, the massive so-called Reform Corrupted, or Reformasi Dikorupsi protests, were hailed as the largest democratic reform protests in Indonesia in two decades. Two years beforehand, Islamist groups also showed their ability to mobilise through their Defence of Islam, or Aksibela Islam protests, which called for the prosecution of the Christian Chinese Indonesian governor of Jakarta on blasphemy charges. How do these movements mobilise and how effective are they at bringing about change? How has protest changed in the age of social media? And how has the state responded to mass protests? Are there parallels also that we can draw between protest movements in Indonesia and its regional neighbours, Thailand and Myanmar? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Dr. Yatun Sastrumijaya, an assistant professor in anthropology at the University of Amsterdam, as well as an associate fellow with the ICES Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore, who has published very extensively on these protest movements. Yatun, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. My pleasure. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, could I start by asking you, how common have mass protest movements been across the two decades of democracy in Indonesia? Well, you could say that they've never been away. Uh, they've always been around in Indonesia, not as much always in the public limelight. But since the end of the New Order regime, the thing is that the public grievances that caused this mass protest movements in the first place have never disappeared, right? I mean, Suharto's exit from power did not magically put an end to all the things that they were fighting against, like institutionalized corruption, state violence and oppression, uh, human rights violations, labor exploitation, environmental destruction, gender injustice, and all these things. On the contrary, these injustices not only remained, but they appear to be uh, all the more blatant, you know, and all the more incongruous to the context of democratization that had been set in since uh, 1998. So democratization raised all kinds of expectations among the public, but also among activists, among students, among broad layers of society for a more just society, basically, for, for a brighter future for society as a whole. And few of these expectations came true in the end. And so there was always the reason to protest has never really uh, disappeared. Um, with the exception, of course, with freedom of expression, which has definitely been uh, expounded since 1998. It uh, has made Indonesia the most liberal country in terms of uh, free expression for a long time, until recently, I would say, in Southeast Asia. And democratization in that sense also facilitated all kinds of new kinds of avenues for organization, for political communications, and therefore for mobilization, which is also why mass protest movements uh, continue to exist. But the main difference is, you know, in the past 20 years, the social movement field in Indonesia has greatly diversified, you could say, almost in tandem with decentralization, the political decentralization of the country. The social movement field has also decentralized and it has diversified because there's no longer 
these centralized organs, centralized uh, organizations that rule the game, so to say, in terms of uh, protest. So one thing that became very clear was protest for a long time was very much the prerogative, right, of the student movement. The student movement in Indonesia during the New Order regime was the only public actor or figure that was allowed to protest within limits, as Ariel Herianto put it. They were the ones who had a special license to protest, owing to this mythologized role that they played in national history from late colonial times until the uh, unseating of uh, President Sukarno in 1966. So for a long time, students were the only one that were associated with protest. But after, after the era of reforms kicked in, protest was suddenly you know, something that any social group could engage in. So yeah, you've seen a lot of diversification, which also splintered a lot of the movement. But to get back to your question, uh, mass protest movements have, have always been there, but because they are no longer clearly associated with one particular actor, they haven't always been as much in the public limelight as before, until recently, of course. Yeah. So uh, by recently, I, I assume in part you're referring to the very large protest we saw in 2019 leading into the inauguration of President Jokowi for a second term, and we will get to those in a second. Yeah. But could I, I mean... You're describing a situation where more people have a license to protest. Uh, not surprisingly, democratization hasn't done away with all the issues that spurred dissent during the authoritarian era. But nevertheless, I mean, for anyone who lives in Indonesia or is a visitor to Indonesia, uh, I'd say, you know, there's a ongoing set of protests at any one time that are not particularly large. What sort of distinguishes those more atypical moments where you get truly massive crowds gathering from those ongoing smaller protests? Well, that's probably a convergence of uh, certain political conditions, so certain political opportunities that come together. But it's also very much a building up of uh, sentiments, uh, a building up at the same time of political experience that all these smaller movements, all these smaller protests have brought activist communities. So just to get to the example of, of uh, September 2019, when we had this movement, this apparently sudden outburst of uh, mass mobilization called the Reformacy di Corruzzi or Reform Corrupted Movement, right, in 2019, it appeared to erupt out of nowhere. But of course, before that, there was a very strong buildup of sentiments, especially among younger generations, and in particular sentiments of great, great disappointment in, in the whole political establishment, basically. This sentiment has been brewing on social media for a very long time. And um, there were certain political conditions. Yeah, I mean, you could some, some activists would say the government was asking for it. When after the re-election of Joko Widodo in April 2019, all these, these very controversial laws and bills were, uh, were put on the table. And that was a sort of a final straw for all these people who had been agitating in smaller protests against uh, contentious bills. And it drew crowds that had been, you know, also uh, expressing political discontent online on social media for uh, several years now. So all this sentiment and all this experience in, in protesting, you know, converged at that particular moment in September 2019. So the conditions and building up of sentiments was very crucial here. Um, but it also had a history, I mean, a, a recent history. 
you remember that in 2014, you know, a lot of people were really hopeful that Joko Widodo could bring real change, that finally democratization was no longer a dream, but something that would become reality, because that was the promise by which he uh, uh, won the elections, basically. So there was this disappointment when very soon it turned out that he was on the side of the old political elites. And there was a very specific turning point, actually, in 2017, when he abandoned the Jakarta governor back then, Ahok, or Basuki Chaya Pornomo, who was attacked by the Islamist movement and conservative forces. And the fact that Joko Widodo didn't come to his rescue for a lot of progressive Indonesians was a sign like, okay, well, we, we've lost him, right? So it was from that moment. And back then, there was also a lot of protest in defense of Ahok. Very, very postmodern kind of protest, like pop-up protests all over Indonesia in the major cities, especially in Jakarta. And these pop-up protests, which involved not just activists, but a lot of middle-class, you know, regular people, citizens, when they experienced, first of all, the experience of protest itself, of doing protest, and then after that experience that it didn't do any good, that Jacobito didn't listen to them, that kind of triggered the sentiment that I was talking about, this deep disappointment. So all that has been building up since 2017 for two years. And then with the re-election of Joko Widodo, which was very clearly a move away from the promise of democratization that got him elected in 2014. That was the kind of um, outburst of sentiment that we saw then a few months after his re-election, just before his inauguration. Indeed, indeed. Sort of with varying success, I guess, that protest movement in um, managing to prevent the enactment of controversial revisions to the criminal code, but being unable to prevent a, a weakening of the Corruption Eradication Commission, the KPK. But uh, I guess in hearing you describe that moment that produced such large protests so soon after Jokowi had been re-elected with an increased margin, your emphasis is very much on the build-up of public sentiments of disenchantment with the way that Jokowi was governing. When governments describe protest movements against them, they tend to focus on, I guess, the opposite element to describe this as contrived or organised movement, not reflective of public sentiment. So I guess you have two poles between wholly organised or wholly spontaneous protests. And no doubt the reality is somewhere in between. How would you describe the, I guess, the organisation of a mass process movement like Reformacy de Corupsi? How much of it is spontaneous and how much of it requires well-developed organization to get people out on the streets and sustain the movement? Well, you can't really uh, quantify this thing, but one thing that we saw with the Reformas de Corupsi movement, and this was a, a first in uh, Indonesia really, was this convergence between good old-fashioned mass mobilization um, by all kinds of activist NGOs, by activist student organizations, and, and, you know, it, we need to admit that the student movement still played a very important role in the mass mobilization of student bodies onto the streets, in particular the uh, student executive bodies, or BEM, Badan Executive Mahasiswa, as they're called. They played, especially in, in the initial stages, a very important role in pushing students out of the streets. And they, in turn, were also very much spurred by activist NGOs that have been meeting with each other for a very long time. They had been organizing all kinds of uh, smaller protests. And this controversial bill, you know, the revision of the criminal code and the revised bill on the Corruption Eradication Committee, that 
they recognized the momentum in that. These activist NGOs, they were very much active in making their rounds with other organizations, with student bodies in order to coordinate, okay, what kind of action do we need? So all that is very much organized. But there was a very interesting new factor also, and that is indeed the online youth public that suddenly was also, you know, joining the protest outside of the organization of these, either the student bodies, student organizations, or these activist NGOs. And this is also why the organizers were so surprised by the masses that turned out on the streets. So there was a lot of indeed spontaneous kind of peer mobilization going on in the in the weeks uh, ahead of the mass protests. And especially during the protests, like, I mean, people were making selfies, you know, while, while on the streets and holding very funky signs. And of course, their friends saw that and would also come out and join the protests. So the, this was a convergence of a good old-fashioned organization. And recruitment in that, as well as some, yes, this spontaneous kind of peer mobilization, you could say, that was very much spurred by online communications on uh, on social media. Now, I mean, in our discussion so far, we've focused on, I guess, to use loose language, progressive or reformist in a democratic sense, protest movements. You, of course, did mention the case of the Jakarta governor, Ahok, and uh, the disappointment of many of President Jokowi's supporters when he didn't come to Ahok's defence in the face of very large Islamist protests against the, at the time, incumbent governor of Jakarta. You know, those Islamist protests in themselves, many noted, were the largest mobilisations of any sort we'd seen in Indonesia, perhaps since 1998. Do you see them as those sort of protests, uh, the the so-called action to defend Islam as organized in a similar way, a similar way to what you've just described for the reform corrupted protests? No, it, I think it's a very different kind of category of protest, although there are some similarities because, you know, there's a lot of youth also involved and genuinely, you know, attracted to these movements. But of course, this Islamist drive in Indonesian politics has been very interesting, actually, since the era of reform. Uh, Islamist organizations, also among the student movement, because we had Kami, right, the student action front of uh, Indonesian Muslim students. They were the, the only one of all the organizations that were involved, student organizations that were involved in the student movement of 1998 that, that actually grew after the era of reforms. So Islamic groups were most successful at all, all layers, right, both in the student movement and in other sectors. They were most successful in leveraging the new political opportunities that emerged after Reformasi. Whereas, you know, in other parts of the movement, we saw a lot of splintering going on. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but in, in uh, the Islamic movement, there was a lot of consolidation, collaboration there. And the masses that they could garner, of course, that was the main asset that they had. But it, it's a very different kind of dynamic, both in terms of how they mobilize people through the mosques, so through this vast network of campus mosques, for instance, through the Pesantren uh, or the Islamic boarding houses. So they could really build on these, these existing networks of masses that they could garner. And the difference with other social movements is that Islamic groups, they had very clear affiliations, whether openly or uh, furtively, with uh, certain political elites. So they also commanded a lot of resources, uh, basically money to mobilize people onto the streets. And this is what a lot of other social movements uh, lacked. So in terms of resources, the resource mobilization, the, in terms of attracting funds for their causes, they had much more access to political elites that could provide these funds. 
I mean, that throws up a couple of questions for me. Uh, the first of them, certainly to return to the protest in 2019 and ask what sort of funds were they able to access or did they need to mobilise on, on such a scale and, and how would that compare to those earlier 2016 and 2017 protests against the Jakarta government ad hoc? The unique thing about the protest movement in September 2019 was that they used crowdfunding to pay for the protest, you know, to pay for all the logistics that are needed to organize a protest. And this was, you know, a first in Indonesia, especially on such a mass scale. So in addition to crowdfunding, because that would only garner, you know, how many rupiah, a million rupiah, well, uh, much more is needed to uh, fund protests. But the crowdfunding became a sort of a symbol for the movement in how they want to organize things and how, you know, the kind of ideals and principles they stood for, because it signified, uh, it indicated they wanted to break from dependency ties with elites in order to be able to mobilize, that they could do so on their own resources and that they could organize horizontally rather than vertically as, for instance, the Islamic movement is uh, is organized. So crowdfunding, while it didn't make up the main source of resources and funds for them, it became the a big symbol also because, you know, it was very much magnified in the press and discussed as a novelty, basically, as a novelty that kind of characterized this uh, social media-driven movement and this digitally savvy generation that drove this movement. Sure, sure. I mean, there's a, an, almost an ironic echo of the way that Jokowi himself used this idea of crowdfunding as a, as a symbol to mobilize support uh, in his Absolutely. early political campaigns, both in, in Jakarta and then his first presidential run. But I mean, pick up on that idea of social media as well. You described in the 2019 protests um, the way you had youth taking selfies, mobilizing peers through social media. My recollection of the anti-Ahok protests was, I guess, similar of seeing you know, Indonesian friends and acquaintances posting on social media about going to these protests, uh, sort of enthusiasm about the campaign against Ahok. Was that an important part of those protests to defend Islam or the anti-Ahok protests of 2016 and 2017 as well? So for the Axi Bella Islam, you know, like I mentioned before, I mean, that also mobilized a lot of young people and whatever their ideological color or religious uh, background, youth are all very much into social media in Indonesia, especially uh, as in other Southeast Asian countries. So, of course, Islamist movement, while doing their aggressive chanting and everything, will also post that on social media. But that served a very different purpose than it did in the case of the Reformasi di Corruzi movement in 2019. So that was really much more a sort of manifestation of what they were doing in the moment, while the kind of social media mobilization that took place in uh, September 2019 with the Reformasi di Corruzi movement, that became really part of the protest repertoire. And that was very interesting. And this is something that we we see later also happening in Thailand and Myanmar and that we've seen before in, in uh, the Hong Kong uh, youth movement, where online expressions of protest and uh, actual street protest, how closely they interacted and influenced each other. So this very much influenced the very way young people protest and the kind of the manners in which, in which protest messages are articulated, basically. So... 
there's a very close interplay between online and offline kind of modes of protest, uh, ways of doing protest, which influenced both the messages online on social media and it influenced also the messages that we suddenly saw on the streets. Because what made these street protests in September 2019 so interesting also to the press was the new kind of protest signs, for instance, that we saw emerging in the street protests. So for the first time, we saw a lot of references to K-pop fandom, for instance. And K-pop fandom in Indonesian social media is huge. That involves like millions of young Indonesian teenagers and people in their 20s. And on the streets, we suddenly saw a lot of references to K-pop fandom, which indicated that a lot of K-poppers actually took to the streets, which they had never done before. I remember some protest signs. One of them was saying, I belong to the BTS army. And BTS is, of course, the most popular Korean pop band. But today I belong to the Indonesian army. And there were also protest signs that were saying, well, I left the live streaming of the EXO uh, concert. EXO is another very popular Korean pop band just to join this protest. And that would then indicate great sacrifice on their part to even leave the EXO concert for uh, for this struggle for their uh, nation. So this is very, you know, this seems very trivial, but but it was very important for people who were never out on the streets before and all the young people who were closely following the street protests on social media, they suddenly saw all these slogans that they could identify with. So it had it had a very mobilizing aspect to it as well, different from the selfies that were taken in the mass protest by Axi Bella Isla. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting contrast. Is that... I guess the principal way in which, you know, back in 98, people were photocopying leaflets, student groups struggled to get in touch with each other, apart from through calls over landlines and and even the use of pages. Is that sort of interplay between those online groups, the different messaging, the the main way that the great proliferation of communications technology has changed protest movements over the last couple of decades? Yes, I think it has pamphlets, of course, and they remain very, uh, very important. I mean, in each protest, you still have good old fashioned paper leaflets uh, that are being handed out because they also become sort of souvenir, right, of, uh, of the moment. But the way information flows through digital media really influences not only the content of the information and how it morphs and transforms along the way, you know, as it circulates through different social media channels, through different accounts, as it gets shared and retweeted with different comments and everything. So it kind of democratizes the information flow in a sense that it the kind of message that is being put forward by activist groups, whether on leaflets or on social media, the difference is that in, in the leaflets, the message stays the same, right? It's printed. But as it circulates on social media, the same message gets to be amplified with different kind of or added kind of opinions, added kind of views, different kind of emotions that are being um, put uh, on top of that. So the, the message becomes much more layered on social media. And the more layered it becomes, the more people can identify with parts of these layers, so to speak. So the use of digital media has really expanded the potential reach of the message and the potential for identification with this message. Because previously, activist messages were, you know, among regular youth were often seen as a bit scary. They were leftist. They were uh, very radical and not sure if I can really, if I really agree with that or want to agree with that, because agreeing with a message 
it would then automatically mean associating oneself with the organization that put out this message. And not everyone wants to be associated with that particular radical organization, for instance. But on social media, these activist messages become decoupled from the organization that put them out in the first place. So they become part of the people who, who uh, share them. And this is how activist messages spread much more broadly than in the past through old-fashioned communications, of, as, for example, through leaflets. Now, what forms of repression did those reform-corrupted protests uh, attract? And is it fairly similar to the types of repression we've seen against various mass protest movements during the democratic era in Indonesia? Repression took two forms, basically. So there was the typical kind of repression, you know, of dispersing mass protests with water cannons, batons, and, and just police deployment. And that started not immediately, but immediately after it became clear that this protest movement had a huge mass popular support behind them. So there was a lot of approval from the public, both on the streets, on in the mainstream media and everything. So that, that had to be kind of uh, deflected in a way. And repression then becomes also a kind of way to bring out the violent elements or the more aggressive elements in the protest movement, right? It's, it's provoking a violent response from uh, the protesters. So that has been fairly quickly used against this protest movement after the first week of protest, uh, so to speak. And there were a lot of cases where this violence became really excessive and there have been also several deaths, actually. Several students, as well as several high school kids, were shot or they succumbed to their wounds in, in the hospital. And so this movement also, in that sense, had its own martyrs. But aside from this almost traditional kind of street repression, there was a very interesting new element added to that because social media has become such a very important channel, such a very important arena for the circulation of activist messages, for the mobilization of peers and the garnering of uh, public support as well. The authorities soon realized that they needed to control this cyberspace as well, right? So the uh, cyber repression for the first time became a very serious part of the apparatus of, of repression and of control of, of protest movements. And this is where they also uh, started to deploy a whole army of trolls in Indonesia. They're known as buzzers, you know, paid cyber troops to mobilize against the, the protesters. And a lot of activists have actually, right up, you know, in the context of this defamacity corruption movement, have also, have, have also experienced a lot of online intimidation, like real death threats. And their phones were hacked, their WhatsApp accounts were hacked. And so this became a new strategy in the repression and also in the instillment of fear, right, in, term, uh, in terms of intimidation of activists that has been deployed ever since. A lot of uh, activists have also been arrested on charges of violating uh, cyber laws, anti-defamation laws, the infamous information and the electronics uh, transactions law. So that those kind of cyber laws were also mobilized very frequently against activists. And this happened again in the more recent anti-omnibus law protests, which broke out in October 2021. By then, you know, both the activists, but especially also the authorities, were much more experienced in mobilizing forces in cyberspace. And in terms of repression, this is where the authorities became really successful. So whereas in September 2019, they succeeded in intimidating a lot of activists so that some activists already decided, OK, I don't want to be involved anymore. But 
others were actually spurred all the more to become more active. But in October 2021, with the uh, omnibus law protest, this, this cyber oppression, this cyber harassment and intimidation, as well as the legal ramifications of saying things online or expressing things online that might violate certain laws, that became really effective because it really contributed to you know, the very quick decline of the movement that seemed so promising uh, the moment it, it uh, came out. So, yeah. And the thing about the cyber repression is that different from street repression, you know, which is responsive to the rise of a protest movement, cyber repression can be used preemptively. So through the monitoring of social media spaces, uh, through the implementation of all kinds of surveillance techniques, through the deployment of, you know, these cyber troops, these buzzers, uh, in order to spread government propaganda before it can be countered by activist messages. Um, and really mobilizing a lot of resources into that as well. So there's a preemptive kind of cyber repression that is really stifling the potential of the movement now, especially because, you know, it was it had become so dependent on uh, on social media. I mean, it's, I guess, fascinating to, to think about that in the context of, you mentioned earlier, the greater degree of freedom of expression in Indonesia compared to other countries in Southeast Asia. And certainly, although we've seen physical repression against protest movements in Indonesia, perhaps outside of, of protests in Papua, we haven't seen the degree of, of violent repression that we've seen in some other Southeast Asian states, you know, notably Myanmar, uh, since the coup. How, though, does this cyber repression compare, do you think, to, to some of those more authoritarian states across Southeast Asia? Are we now seeing, I guess, a a similar mode of, of repression between Indonesia and, and some of its Southeast Asian neighbors in that regard. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and of course, it's been absolutely worse uh, what we've seen now in, in Myanmar. But it's very interesting because we see indeed uh, very similar types of patterns happening in authoritarian regimes in Southeast Asia. And, and Indonesia officially is a democracy still, so not an authoritarian regime, but it has authoritarian tendencies uh, more and more. And we see that, you know, the kind of uh, tactics that are being deployed in Indonesia are very much also used in Thailand, in Myanmar, where in response to the rise of a protest movement, you know, cyber surveillance has stepped up and even internet, there was even uh, uh, an internet shutdown or ongoing in Myanmar. And there's a lot of cyber harassment as well, but that's, it just has very, very institutionally it differs because in Thailand, for instance, there's this part of the military that is called the Information Office, popularly known as IO, which has the official task of, you know, monitoring, surveying and keeping in control anything that happens uh, on social media. But the troll business, the trolling industry is something that has been spreading and uh, professionalizing a lot in, in all these Southeast Asian uh, regimes. So that is very similar across the region. And... Uh, I'm sure they also learn from each other's playbook uh, because there are playbooks actually on, on how to, you know, maximize propaganda and internet controls. But uh, alongside the pattern of the, the increasingly similar pattern of cyber repression, we also see an increasingly similar pattern of mobilization by what we can call the digital generation, which has really enabled and spurred the new type of protest that we see happening in, in Southeast Asia. First, Reformacity Corrupsi, and then, of course, the movement in Thailand, which was also different from the past, no longer a traditional student movement, but really a much broader youth movement carried by different sectors of the youth demographic. 
And similarly, again, in, in Myanmar, where the movement, you know, was no longer associating itself only with the oppressed party of Aung San Suu Kyi, but really identified itself and mobilized itself in terms of this kind of broader youth movement uh, for democracy. So all these youth who identify themselves as digital youth, as very digitally connected youth across Southeast Asia, they have developed this, what you could call this common sense of ideological drive towards real political change, towards a real democracy, um, the idea of authoritarianism being completely unacceptable to them because it totally doesn't fit their own, you know, life world, their own image of what, you know, a good life uh, should look like. And the very interesting thing about all these different youth groups that we see emerging in the region is that they not only, you know, start to forge ties amongst themselves or connections among themselves in terms of solidarity networks, but more and more we see that they also form a sort of affinity networks. And affinity, of course, goes much deeper than solidarity. Affinity really points to this shared sense of, of kinship, right? That they're really brothers and sisters fighting the same uh, regional struggle for, for democracy. So that, that I think, is very hopeful. And that is the only hopeful thing at the moment, because all these movements are very much embattered and very much repressed and uh, losing support because mainstream media are also being censored uh, more and more. But this sense of affinity of, well, we're all in this together. And, you know, it's it, it feels like a generational struggle rather than a particular sectoral struggle in a particular national context. That is what keeps these these young people going, you know, uh, despite all the adversities, despite the violence, uh, especially in Myanmar, that's absolutely horrible. And and yet they continue. It's it's amazing, actually. And uh, in doing so, they also inspire Indonesian activists who have been very much repressed in the past months. They continue to inspire young activists in, in Thailand who are also being repressed at the moment. So this kind of, yeah, I'm very curious where this will lead to, but I see something new happening in this new affinity networks being forged across the region. Sure, sure. No, and I mean, that's a, something of a grim overall picture, though, that you, you paint despite those affinity networks of embattled networks in these various countries who are, who are struggling yeah. to counter the repression that they're facing. I mean, you mentioned Indonesia as a democratic state with authoritarian tendencies rather than an out-and-out uh, authoritarian regime. You know, over the last few years, have protest movements in Indonesia of the sort of reform corrupted and, and then the protests against the omnibus law been any more successful in achieving political change than what we've seen in recent times in, in Thailand and Myanmar? So in terms of achieving immediate political targets, none of these movements, you know, whether in Indonesia, Thailand, or, or currently in, in uh, Myanmar, have been very successful. They didn't achieve their goals. You know, the omnibus law still stands, the Thai regime still stands, the junta and the, and the Thai monarchy is as unshakable as ever. And in Myanmar, the, the situation just seems very much desperate. So you could say that in terms of having been politically successful, that remains to be seen. But they have been incredibly successful in a different way. They have been a very much important as a sort of demonstration, right, a manifestation of, of this very important shift in political attitudes among younger generations. It became very clear in Indonesia. It has become very clear also in Thailand and now in Myanmar. And I'm sure something similar might happen in the Philippines very soon, actually, that the younger generations are completely not just disenchanted with the political, uh, political establishment, but they're really disconnecting 
themselves from that political culture and they are forming a new political culture amongst themselves uh, across national borders. And why is this important? Because this cannot be ignored, right? As long as there are elections, I mean, in Indonesia for sure, but even in Thailand and even in Myanmar, they cannot ignore this shift in political attitudes. Uh, and it's really a radical shift, um, political attitudes uh, from the younger generations. Because one thing that these younger generations across these different countries have demonstrated is that they have distanced themselves from the old political fault lines that have defined politics in Southeast Asia for the past two decades. I mean, in Thailand, it was for a very long time the red shirts versus the yellow shirts, right? And the youth activists, the youth protest movement today say, you know what, we don't want to be involved in that kind of polarization. We are moving ahead. Similarly, in Indonesia, this whole polarization we, we've seen between uh, the Prabowo camp and the Jokowi camp, that has been completely, you know, absent in the protest movement. So they want to move ahead. You know, they want to completely distance themselves from all political fault lines and start something new. And this is something that authorities cannot afford to ignore, basically. Sure, sure. So even if they're not achieving immediate outcomes, there's hope for longer term political change. Yes, there should always be hope. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, uh, perhaps then, you know, while there's a lot more I could ask you, we should end on a hopeful note. And so I might say, Yatun, yeah. thanks so much for, for joining us on Talking Indonesia today and sharing your insights. It's, it's been great. It's been great uh, being part of this. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Yatun Sastrumijaya, Assistant Professor in Anthropology at the University of Amsterdam and an Associate Fellow with the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore with the Media, Technology and Society program. Talking Indonesia returns on the 3rd of June with my co-host Dr. Charlotte Satyadi. Until then, as always, you can catch up on the entire archive of episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.